0: Welcome to Yet Another Science Podcast, a podcast devoted to conversations with scholars containing philosophical, historical, motivational, conceptual, and technical questions relating to their research. Yejin Choi is a professor at the School of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Washington and also a Senior Research Director at AI2. She received her doctorate in computer science at Cornell University and bachelor's in computer science and engineering at Seoul National University in Korea. Her research investigates a wide variety of problems across NLP and AI including common sense knowledge and reasoning, neural language, de-generation, language grounding with vision and experience, and AI for social good. She is a MacArthur Fellow and a recipient of many best paper awards such as NAACL, ICML, NeurIPS, ICCV, and AAAI. She is the recipient of ACL and CVPR test of time awards. She won the inaugural Alexa prize and was one of IEEE's 10 to watch. Enjoy.
1: So when I was an undergrad, I had this great professor, David Yudas, and he would always say, if you wanna be a computer scientist, you have to learn how to think like a computer. And over the years, this has really stuck with me. When I first started to learn how to program, I really got to see how a computer thinks, but I was pretty underwhelmed actually. They were very brittle. You got to be very careful. You got to get your semicolons right. Uh, You know, it's very, it's very sensitive to errors. It takes a lot of effort to get these computers to do anything because you got to get a bit precise. But when you do get them, they're these powerful deductive machines. However, they lack this sort of common sense reasoning. Like I feel like when a person approaches a computer, they sort of, they sort of expect it to get the common sense that they have and be able to you know program with it so my question is what is this common sense that computers lack what is its nature and why do computers struggle with it
2: yeah great question um so it's been a mystery in ai from day one in day one you know at the beginning of ai history Uh, researchers thought that this must be a summer project or something, solving common sense. Just program that up. (laughs) And then they realized that, oh, it's harder than they thought. So they worked on it and then worked on it some more. And um, a lot of smart people worked on it. And then after a couple of years, they concluded that uh, this is too hard. And if you want to be serious with uh, any progress, don't work on it. Because it's just unrealistically hard. Um, and then um, we started making really gro- great progress with harder, seemingly harder tasks like machine translation or solving chess games or game of Go and prof- protein folding and whatnot. So, um, why is then common sense so hard for machines while so trivial for humans? Like, even babies started. Th- Uh, manifesting common sense capabilities early on. And then even animals have some level of that as well. So um, I define common sense as just broad scope of everyday uh, knowledge about how the world works, how the physical world works, and how the social world works. So we acquire this knowledge um, from early on in our lives. Now, why is this hard? I think there are multiple reasons, but one reason, one important reason is that it's so obvious to humans, we don't talk about it. That's uh, part of the no. reason why machines trained on internet data will not necessarily learn that a horse might have two eyes. So if you ask GPT-3 how many eyes a horse has, um, you know, previous version did say, Maybe three, two in the front and one in the back, and so that kind of answers, you know, come out because we just don't talk about it, and machines are trained on data where maybe some weird exceptional cases are mentioned, uh, or um, you know, people might be doing even like a sci-fi storytelling where there's this monster horse which may have had more than two eyes. So. Um, The fact that it's so obvious and then people don't talk about it, that's one reason. By the way, if we just look at news news, uh, articles and then have machines to learn about how human society works, it might have a a wrong impression that we kill each other, we murder each other (laughs) a lot more often than we inhale, exhale. Mm. And in fact, it's going to think that we inhale a lot more than we exhale, because we tend to report only one of them. We we tend to mention only one of them more often than the other. So again, this is uh, basically reporting bias problem. Like we don't talk about things that's so obvious. Another reason why it's so hard is because uh, there's so many corner cases in life. You know, corner case in computer science or software development, Could mean something that's rare and, you know, things that only happen once in a while. Therefore, maybe we shouldn't worry about it as much, but we kind of need to because otherwise software might break. The thing about real life situation, though, is that corner cases are not uncommon. Or I, I like to say exceptions are not exceptional. So, what do I mean by that is that, you know, birds can fly in general, except penguins cannot fly. Except for some penguins that can actually fly, you know. There are exceptions to exceptions. And in fact, um, if we just, uh, you know, all the research, all the AI researchers try to code that up as, okay, you know, except for penguins, birds can fly. How about that? But then the problem is sleeping birds cannot fly. Birds that are newborns cannot fly. Birds that are sick may not be able to fly. Birds that's trapped in a cage cannot fly. Birds that have injured wings cannot fly. So... There are a lot of these exceptions that we don't talk about, but you and I can reason about this on the fly. So the fact that exceptions are not exceptional—that's a real challenge to today's neural networks, as well as the self-driving cars.
1: I, re- I really like the way you defined it. Um, it has this. It almost feels like a formal form of reasoning, but it's also—it it's also, also sometimes doesn't. Right. Um, it has this. It's common sense is this very fuzzy thing. Um, yeah, it has a very close relationship to like language, I think, like and, and culture as yeah. well. Yeah, um, totally. Can you linger on this a little bit?
2: Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. So um, it's very interesting. First of all, I want to comment on your uh, comment about what how this appeals. Uh, it feels like a potentially formal logic, and yet it's fuzzy. That's exactly right. Some portion of our reasoning feels logical so that uh, maybe we can somehow formalize it. And yet at the same time, it feels so fuzzy because it's somehow not precise enough or uh, even uh, there's no universal truth per se, uh, which is really against the way that computer scientists were trained on day one, you know, it's supposed to be, we're supposed to be seeking truth and precision. But the real challenge with the common sense is that uh, if we really worry about broad scope of common sense capabilities, then uh, things become very fuzzy in the sense that you and I might not even agree on what a common sense interpretation of a situation should be. You and I might have even different set of common sense knowledge. So uh, you also mentioned that uh, le- common sense seems quite relevant to language. So there, uh, in fact, the opinions were divisive. Some people felt that since babies have a common sense, it must be that common sense has nothing to do with language. Or because octopus or my mm. cute little puppy has common sense, it must be that language has nothing to do with the common sense. So this is one stream of opinions uh, regarding common sense. Uh, but I am on the other side uh, where I do believe that language is very, very closely related to a human level common sense knowledge. You know, in the end, we don't want just AI that's at the level of three-year-old. We want the adult level common sense, Right. Uh, So then language becomes super important because some of our common sense knowledge about how the world works came from language. So the fact that tigers are scary, we never learned that by actual grounded experience, by encountering a tiger that tries to, you know, eat a human being. I've never seen it in my real life. I, in fact, never watched a YouTube video of a tiger attacking human being either, but I can totally believe it only based on text-based input about what tiger is capable of. Um, So in that regard, I think human-level common sense knowledge about how the world works has very close connection to language. And then about, finally, culture that uh, you commented on. Uh, It's really interesting that culture feels like a very different, distinct concept compared to common sense. But these two things are actually interleave, interleaving in my mind because there's no clinical, very clean-cut clinical boundary between where exactly common sense begins and stops and then where exactly culture begins and stops. They sort of um, interleave. So uh, that's uh, another fascinating thing about common sense. And that's what makes all of this really, really hard.
1: When you put it like that, it common sense feels so deductive, but it's that's a bit of an illusion, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Um, no.
1: You know. yeah. and, and cu- culture really does sort of enable it. Like the way the way you gave that bird example, you know, if <laughs> a, a flying to a bird seems like common sense, that's you know sort of in their culture. But there's also there's also a bit of an instinct element to it as well. Um, That's really interesting.
2: Since you mentioned that common sense doesn't feel like deductive, um, it also feels like inductive in a way. Yeah. uh, In that sometimes we generalize based on a few examples, uh, and then we are able to make more... So common sense in general might be forming from more um, uh, concrete examples, and then we abstract away what the common patterns In the way people interact with each other, or in the way you know, I interact with an object, so that initially uh, a child may not know that uh, if you keep doing things that other people don't like, then the other person might eventually get upset with you. But you know, after doing it in a while, you figure it out and then you be more careful because you start to see a pattern and then you abstract away some general rules. So, So that feels more inductive. And yet, uh, in my mind, uh, it's also really closely related to abductive reasoning. So abductive reasoning, by the way, is less known compared to deduction and induction. A lot of students do learn induction and deduction early on in their uh, education, whereas I noticed that a lot of college students never heard of abduction. I mean, they, they think of something else, not the abductive reasoning, but, uh, you know, criminal act abduction. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it may be uh, helpful to define what it is. So abductive yeah. reasoning is uh, due to Charles Paul's, um, I don't know how many years ago, but a long time ago. Um, and so he basically, his position was that abduction or abductive reasoning is actually what does matter for a vast majority of human reasoning, day-to-day life. So abductive reasoning is about trying to reason about the best explanation based on partial observation. Uh, So then what it means is that we're trying to reason about some explanation for a current situation. Uh, And oftentimes, because it's a partial observation, we don't know the entire truth about current state, uh, current situation. So for example, imagine you come home and your windows, the, the windows of your house are broken. What happened? You don't know exactly what happened while you were gone. So that's why it's a partial observation. Now you're making a guess. You know, probably the first thing that comes to your mind is that a thief came in And the thief is a human being as opposed to an alien. Or, you know, uh, it's unlikely that an elephant showed up and then knocked your window out, even though elephants should be capable of doing so because we just never see elephants around the cities. Uh, Or, you know, your mom could have come and broken into the window. She's perfectly capable, but why would she? Uh, She'd rather call you or something. So, you know, there are a lot of things that's, not impossible, but there are many things that don't even come to our mind as possible explanations because uh, our brain is sort of wired to make predictions that are more likely. And so these uh, likely explanations are not necessarily true, but we tend to make these predictions all the time. And so that is abductive reasoning. And um, it's different from deduction in the sense that in most cases where we apply abduction, deduction is not even applicable because we just simply don't have enough of the premise or uh, context from which we can actually deduce a conclusion with the full confidence. So oftentimes, all that we can do is actually just abduction.
1: So let's, let's talk about computers a little bit. So yeah. how, what, how, how do computers do these forms of reasoning? Uh, like what, what sort of like like we have we have you know AI. What what is the sort of mapping between like the AI techniques to these forms of reasoning?
2: Great question. Um, you know, in the textbook, AI textbook, well, machines do induction and deduction based on logical forms.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh except doesn't seem like it covers very much of anything because the premise or uh, hypothesis underlying all these logical forms Is that an oracle pops out and then hands you with all this definition of predicates and, you know, logical forms, and then only then you can do some induction and deduction, except who's going to give you that in the first place? Uh, It turns out nobody can. Even scientists cannot automatically induce all these logical forms that describe everything that happens in the world. So... That's not a very good uh, scientific or computational mechanism that fully supports this. Although in some limited domains, it has been a powerful tool. If you don't worry about broad scope common sense, but only worry about your, say, um, some like uh, operational problems where logical forms are covering every situation, then it's okay, but otherwise it's not useful. In the context of today's neural language models, uh, researchers studied exploring the use of just neural networks for doing some of this um, deduction-like reasoning. In the NLP field, we call it natural language inference task that tries to determine whether a pair of sentences look like a case of entailment or contradiction or neither of the two. So it's a little bit deduction-like, but it's more... Um, uh, lose the sense of deduction in the sense that you, you don't know for sure because sometimes context is missing. And then abductive reasoning is studied even less. But um, uh, I, I studied working on it by making a data set in natural language. And then other people started working on it as well. Uh, but it's relatively less explored. And then induction, again, uh, it's a case of being able to generalize things. And I would say that... Um, It's such an important aspect of human reasoning, but these things are relatively less explored in the current deep learning literature or in general in AI.
1: There's two camps of AI, the symbolic side of things and the machine learning side of things. Uh, You know, in in the symbolic side of things, we have like logic solvers, which are just powerful deductive reasoning engines. And then, in machine learning side of things, we have these powerful inductive reasoning and a little bit of abductive reasoning. Uh, why is it so hard to glue these two together? You think?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Why is it so hard? By the way, I realized what I said earlier might have um, not give may have not given enough credit for more logic based systems. Um, I, I was sort of coming from the perspective of. Induction, deduction, abduction in the context of a broader scope common sense reasoning. Yeah, yeah. So I'll clarify that. No worries, no worries. Um, but um, yeah, uh, it's, uh, I, you know, that's, um, I don't have a really good answer to that except for uh, saying that um, we seem to know some powerful uh, s- computational tools that are not necessarily developed in the way that human intelligence is, you know, developed or uh, uh, human intelligence approaches reasoning. But rather, uh, we we just discover something that does work for some uh, sort of problems. And then um, we're now trying to reconcile that to some degree, but we're still in the process of trying to figure things out. But yeah, I don't have any better answer, sorry.
1: (laughs) When I was at a conference over the summer... Uh, yeah, they had a psychologist there, and uh, they talked about how human beings uh, use the, these various forms of reasoning, deductive, abductive, inductive. Uh, and I got the chance to ask her, uh, why are humans able to combine these forms of reasoning well, but machines aren't able to? And her, ans- her answer shocked me because she re- she rejected sort of the premise of the question. She said, humans can't do this well. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you know, that's to some degree true. So, I mean, you know, about this induction, deduction, I can mention this book if I can pull this book out of a bookshelf without disturbing all the other books. So, in this book, there are some chapters about How We Reason by Philip Johnson Laird. So, this book has some chapters about just induction or deduction in the way humans do. And um, it's fascinating because um, if you apply computer science-style induction to some of the induction examples, it doesn't work in the sense that humans always like read between the lines and we apply pragmatics and uh, common sense knowledge about how the world works. So we tend to see things that's not literally mentioned in text all the time. And it's actually the correct thing to do for efficient human-to-human communications. But what it also means is that whatever humans are doing, whether it's induction or deduction, doesn't really align well with the way that computer scientists tend to define these things super precisely. So in that sense, um, you know, one could say that, well, humans are not very good at what computers are good at, which is being extremely precise and extremely literal. We could actually say that the other way that, you know, well, humans are amazing at skipping over obvious details uh whereas machines are so hopeless and then you have to like you know it uh articulate everything so precisely and then still it doesn't work so we could say it either way but um the i think underlying subtext of what um you know uh, was a psychologist um what she said uh is also that human reasoning does have a lot of flaws, which is very true. Uh, even if human reasoning is more powerful in my mind uh, compared to computers today in many ways, um, it also is without flaws. So human reasoning especially can have a cognitive dissonance uh, so that you know, we actually have two simultaneous beliefs that are at us without even realizing that. So uh, that's why, especially with some of these political arguments about, you know, what's the right thing to do, sometimes you try to rationalize why you believe certain things and it just doesn't work with the other party because the other party is not operating based on rational reasoning. The other party is operating based on, I am going to believe what I'm going to believe no matter what. So, well, that's the humans. <laughs>
1: being human. You know, speaking of great, you know, speaking of great books, there's another one by uh, I think it's Daniel Kahneman, uh, where he introduces these sorts of systems, like System One, System Two. Yeah. Um, and he, he talks he talks about how these systems can do like various levels of reasoning. Can you can you What is System One? What is System Two?
2: Yeah. So System One um, is generally about something effortless, very reactive and quick. It feels like a pattern based. It feels a little bit like memorized even. Um, I'm hesitating a little bit there because I want to come back to it. But then system two feels like more effortful, something that feels more logical, um, something that feels like more precise. And um, so that's sort of like what people tend to associate system one and system two uh, um And I think that's due to his own book that, you know, like Thinking Fast and Slow, which became super popular. Actually, though, if we go back to Daniel Kahneman's own previous research, the first paper in which System 1 and System 2 were introduced, which was, I think, in 2003 or so, uh, had actually three systems, not just two, but underlying System 1, there was a perception which was separate. And so um, I think a lot of the time when people talk about system one, actually might be about even lower level system, which is perception, uh, which is really truly just a perceptual things. And then system one in my mind is actually more advanced than just the perceptual things. Um, And people then started the thinking, oh, maybe um, deep learning solved the system one almost. I think there was actually a very famous... Deep learning uh, researcher who kind of declared that in one of the invited talks, so um, people started really believing it. But I don't think um, so. What he said was that maybe deep learning solved the system one, and then from here on, we gotta really worry about system two. But wait a minute, classical AI, uh, especially you know the powerful logic-based uh, solvers. Uh, maximum satisfiability problems, and all that is actually really about system two. Uh, the, in some sense, before deep learning, AI research was a lot about system two type systems where or system two type models where we were really looking at very precise logical programs uh, that we can optimize. So I would rather say that Well, uh, we tried both System 1 and System 2, but we don't do all that well for neither of them because System 1 is really far from solved. And uh, the thing about System 1 is that it's a lot about common sense reasoning, common sense anticipations and common sense predictions about preconditions and post-conditions and people's intent and their emotional state and theory of mind. None of this is solved by deep learning today. Far from it. Um, And then... If you like that kind of um, that kind of uh, contrast, I um, highly recommend this book by Stanislas Duhane about consciousness brain consciousness and the brain. yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, so uh, it's a it's a small book, but it's a very dense. I, I just love it. but this actually talk about something shocking about so this book is about unconscious reasoning and conscious reasoning. Mm which kind of feels like, okay, unconscious reasoning is a bit more reactive and it feels more intuitive and it feels more system one-like. And then conscious reasoning is more effortful, so it's maybe more system two-like. And people tend to think that system two reasoning must be where all this amazing, logical, human intelligence comes out and system one feels a little bit like easy breezy, you know, pattern matching. It's not clear whether it's as simple as that. When I read this book, because um, unconscious reasoning on the other hand might be where real, real, real strong human reasoning pops out, especially uh, for mathematicians who solve really difficult theorems out of a sudden. So at some point the book talks about how those people who have a mathematical breakthrough, oftentimes have this moment after, you know, struggling to do system to reasoning hours and hours, you know, you try different proof techniques and nothing works. You feel really frustrated and almost depressed. And then, you know, you go for jogging or take a shower and suddenly, boom, you have this intuition that I got this. But when the moment comes, they don't actually know yet how to write out the proof, but they just know that they know. And then now they need to restart the system to reasoning. But that's when it might be that system one type reasoning was actually working the whole time, but you're unconscious about the fact that your brain was actually working the whole time. And then uh, brain suddenly realized, oh, I know how to connect to the dots in the most creative and unexpected way imaginable. And I personally have this experience quite a bit myself where when I try to compose a difficult article or when I try to thread a keynote uh, that I've never given before. And then I have some bunch of different ideas and I'm not sure like how to organize the talk and how to um, thread a story. And I tried this, I tried that. Nothing works. I feel like miserable. I'm going to, you know, blow my keynote. And suddenly after this frustration for a while, I wake up in the morning feeling really tired and excited simultaneously because all night long I've been dreaming about different ways of composing things. And then I have this like intuition that I think I got this. I don't know yet exactly how, but I know that. And then usually as I start writing things out or you know uh, work out my slide, whatever, uh, it's all there. It's almost as if the, the brain actually has been thinking about it the whole time. I only yeah. need to pull that out. It's like a piece of a cake at that point.
1: Wow. That is, I've never heard this term until just now. That's This is such an interesting idea. It, it's sort of, you know, we, we talked about the different forms of reasoning. You know, how like system two seems kind of like logic based or like sort of, it sort of resembles, most closely resembles the logic solver side of AI. While the system one sort of most resembles the machine learning side of AI. And when you put it like that, it does sort of seem like this unconscious reasoning is like sort of the glue, if you will, between these two systems. This is such an interesting yeah. idea.
2: It might really be a powerful thing that we computer scientists tend to minimize for have, lack have of... of
1: yeah, sorry, but have, have people thought about this in regards to like sleep, for example, you know, which yeah. is still a major mystery because that, that's... Yeah. I know, I don't feel that phenomenon. I I I don't run as much, but as I should. But I feel this phenomenon mostly when I like wake up in the morning. Yeah, you know, yeah. I uh,
2: I do actually. Speaking of that, I do wonder what happens during sleep, and that may be important aspect of human reasoning capabilities because I do think that's when we actually generate a lot of uh, uh, ideas, um, regurgitating some of what we learned previously, but also somehow keep generating new hypotheses and i wonder why that's also we tend to dream which is like making things up based on some experience of the day and um i i do wonder whether generating a lot of ideas hypotheses or generating a lot of predictions are important aspect of both the reasoning as well as learning and yeah. um i mean it's a known i i think at least it's a known thing that sleeping is really important for uh, optimizing learning and memorization of students when they new learn new things, and even for solving difficult math problems, probably it's much harder if without enough sleep. So uh, that seems to be some potential inspiration for how we can rethink about the way that AI works today. And you know, this is. Actually, touching on my very speculative thought about you know potentially different learning framework, but I do wonder mm. whether it's a good thing if the machine tries to regurgitate what it learned but try to describe things in its own in its own uh, capacity or or even try to discover some patterns that was not explicitly spoken out loud in the input data uh, in the way that humans are capable of. who knows
1: This is really interesting. <laughs> All right, let, let's let's change gears a little bit. Um, <clears throat> right now, in all the media, all the rage is large language models, um, foundation models. Um, what are these things? And everyone keeps talking about. I, th- maybe this is some a little clickbait, but people keep talking about this emergent phenomena in language models. Once we turn up the number of parameters in the model past a certain threshold or something. Uh, what are these things, and what is this emergence that people keep talking about?
2: Yeah, so, um, yeah, it turns out large models can learn and generalize a lot more than computer scientists were willing to believe for a long time. So, some of this emergent uh, phenomenon has to do with, I guess, what uh, we call as a few-shot uh instruction-based learning or in-context learning where if you give a few examples as a prompt, then the models might be able to uh, learn really fast and then be able to compose text that's just unbelievably good that follows the pattern that you provided. Um, So uh, that's empirical discovery that we didn't necessarily foresaw uh, as uh something that we would gain only by making things larger than before, um, yeah, it's exciting time,
1: yeah people are <laughs>
2: though you know, some there, people there was, are freaking out about it,
1: <laughs> yeah, some people are like uh, there was a consciousness claim by that one Google engineer. Oh but yeah, yeah, anyway, um let's talk about a few of them. so we have chat G we have g p t three. Uh, I hear GPT-4 is coming out. They might be out by the time this gets released. Uh, and ChatGPT. Uh, I actually asked ChatGPT what questions I should ask you today. <laughs> uh, are, are you surprised how powerful these tools are? Um, are um, we close to the Turing test? Nah. These?
2: I mean, yeah. I am, I'm excited about them. I am surprised, about. actually I've been already surprised by... Some precursor capabilities enough so that what they are able to do right now is less surprising in a way, um, but they're very impressive nonetheless. I um, I think I was actually surprised even by GPT two quite a bit while you know people were less surprised by it. So in some sense, I was pretty surprised. Um, Yeah, and I I think it's going to be even more amazing in the coming years because I think our imagination has been so much shaped by how much AI doesn't work in the past so that we actually don't know what is um, possible. In that sense, I think we'll be more impressed. However, I don't think a Turing test has been solved or will be solved tomorrow either uh, in the following sense. I, I know that some people actually do believe that Turing test has been already solved because, you know, look at this one GPT-3 output or chat GPT output. That's just so good. I cannot distinguish if this is written by human or machine. But my counter argument to that is that, God, you, you have to look at the average case, not the best case that you picked as a human. You know, it's not even that GPT-3 itself picked as, okay, this is my best performance, evaluate me on this. Um, it actually doesn't know when it does not make silly mistakes, like uh, even ChatGPT, when, you know, somebody asks this like a simple Winograd schema challenge, you know, if you ask in one way, it, uh, it this was about actually trophy that doesn't fit into a brown suitcase because it was too big then what's too big, you know? Trophy is too big, right? Since it couldn't fit into the brown suitcase. No. <laughs> but what if I say if it's too small, then of course you have to switch, oh, it means uh, brown suitcase, that it was too small to fit the trophy. So depending on whether I ask you whether which one was too big or which one was too small, uh, you can reason whether it should be trophy or suitcase. Uh, on the other hand, the GPT th- uh, chat GPT was like, oh, uh, if a trophy couldn't fit into the suitcase, maybe that's because trophy itself was too small. What a silly nonsense. So it doesn't really know. <laughs> and um, it's just sort of going with the surface pattern feeling, but you know, it's not guaranteed to be robust by any measure. So I think if we look at average performance, then the problem right now is that all these neural networks make mistakes, especially if you give adversarial examples. Especially if you give, you know, the, the sort of uh, adversarial examples that Gary Marcus likes to come up with. You know, in one example, he asked, like, oh, you know, uh, what if I uh, mix porcelain powder with breast milk to feed the baby? And, you know, ChatGPT says, oh, you know, it may be more nutritious because yada, yada. And it's, um, you know, adversarial in the sense that it's a total nonsense that you're prompting the model with. But uh, as a human, it's really interesting how you and I have never seen this adversarial example before, but it doesn't feel like adversarial at all. It's a trivial, nonsensical example that we would say, no, that's dangerous. Don't do that. But um, the problem is machines today don't really have a true understanding about any concept. And so that's the real real challenge. And okay, so here's a philosophical question back to you and back to the audience, which is, um, you know, like how much of exceptions are there and how much the scale can cover? You know, earlier on I said, exceptions are not exceptional. And so we actually don't know what is the depth and breadth of that exceptional space? And this is, by the way, really important for robustness as well as AI safety, because, you know, adversarial players can always trip the system up by saying something a little bit off. But also just um, robustness-wise, AI should be able to handle this sort of like uh, previously unseen different situations. Um, And the problem right now is that we simply don't know how much of these exceptional cases we have to cover uh, for AI? And can we actually just do that by fuchsia prompting? Can we just do Mm -hmm. that by through human uh, feedback, you know, the the reinforcement learning with human feedback? Is that going to be enough so long as we crowdsource 100,000 extra examples? Or are we talking about something that's surprisingly, surprisingly hard? That we don't know yet, and I worry a little bit that it might be much harder than we think.
1: Whenever I think about like whether or not the machine actually understands everything, I, I still haven't been able to get over the fact that it's just optimizing some objective function. You know, I, I've, I've really struggled to get past that point. And for a long time, I never thought AGI or artificial consciousness would be possible because that's all it's really doing, right? It's just optimizing some objective function. Uh, and I, I kind of, and you, I feel like that's sort of why you see these systems do what they do. They, they're they optimizing an objective function, but that objective function doesn't contain common sense. It doesn't yeah. it contain deductive reasoning.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. I mean, it cannot be that objective function is only about which word comes next. And that somehow solves all the reasoning challenges magically. I think that's just... Um, uh, False belief that's completely ungrounded, not scientific at all. I am totally with you on that.
1: i want to take another step back. Um, how did you find this problem? Uh, were there recent developments that sort of got you excited when you were, you know, in undergrad or early grad school? Did you have big inspirations or like other scholars that sort of motivated you? How did you how did you get here? You mean this problem being common sense or? Uh, common sense natural language processing in general oh, ai yeah um oh,
2: oh okay um Push so a story. <laughs> yeah like before my phd uh when i decided to do my phd um it was still ai winter time and mm-hmm. uh i was in this era when networks and operating systems uh, systems in general uh were hot so i was going to do that and i was a pretty good hacker back then my programming it becomes irrelevant in this new era but um uh but um so i was software developer uh not knowing that i could actually be a grad student or do even phd because i came from a different very different um, cultural background in which I believed that I'm no good, you know. I'm not smart enough to do PhD. You know? Are you kidding me? So I uh, started having a job as a software developer. I was excited to do that, uh, but I wasn't sure whether I want to do it for the rest of my life uh, versus uh, taking on an adventure into uh, less studied field like AI. In case AI becomes hot later, then I'm, I'm there early on. So I decided I'm gonna take a risk because if AI doesn't take off, I can always go back to a software engineering job. Uh, but at least I wouldn't have a regret. And why was I so excited about AI um, is that, I don't know, it's just like the, the vague thought of programming intelligent systems, mimicking human intelligence sounded really exciting and especially language uh, seemed like a unique capability only humans have. And I was never very good at language growing up. My English was particularly worse. Um, My Korean was, could have been better too. So (laughs) I didn't necessarily, now by the way, my job requires me to do speaking and writing all the time. So I became much better at it, but (laughs) back then I was very quiet because I was not able to speak up very well. And um, so I maybe, you know, you know, you mentioned at the very beginning of the interview that, oh, maybe it's important to, for you to understand computer's perspective to design computer al- uh, algorithms and systems better. So, you know, I was wondering, since I'm not very good at language, maybe I can think from computer perspective better. So maybe it's okay for me to focus on language, especially within AI as a focus uh, topic. So that's how I started my PhD in NLP. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a long time ago. Back then, I didn't even think about common sense even vaguely. I was just going to do something about language.
1: Nobody thinks of common sense. Everybody just sort of takes it for granted, I guess. Uh, and it's, it's crazy that you say people's, your culture, or you, you said people told you you weren't good enough. But now here you are. You you literally won the Genius Grant. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd thought have thought? A, quite of a turnaround, right? Yeah. What about, uh, like, what about like mentors uh, or like, like historical ones or like uh, just other people you might have interacted with that just really got you motivated?
2: Oh, yeah. There are a um, number of really important people in my heart because they might have said something just, you know, something very brief but so kind at a conference that, you know, gave me a lot of hope, or their just existence gave me a lot of hope. So there were some people who had really important positive impact in my career because, you know, I was on the verge of giving up so many times, Um, uh, especially when, you know, when I was doing a a PhD, NLP was not a hot topic either, and, you know... um, uh, there are many things difficult about uh, a lot of, you know, the, also like um, uh, inclusive culture is improving definitely compared to how things were in the past. So, um, uh, yeah, but I, I really appreciate these people who uh, showed a bit of a kindness and encouragement uh, along the way.
1: Can you name drop anyone?
2: Oh, uh, I yeah, I could. It's just... Um, I, I there's a, a lot of names and I would be a bit sure, sorry sure. for people that I couldn't <laughs> mention together, but I might as well still go ahead and mention some names. So Ray at, um he's a professor at UT Austin. Um, he would talk to me even when I was, the you know, I attended this conference for the first time in my life. Usually, such a famous professors don't talk to this nobody, but he would and um, he would really engage with a lot of junior students. And so that became my role model. I really appreciated that he was being uh, approachable. And then, uh, yeah, he was very encouraging all around. Um, and then um, Dan Drusky, uh oh, that unfor- unforgettable moment in which. So before I joined UW as a faculty member, I was uh, beginning my tenure track at the Stony Brook University. Um, and so, you know, my student was going to present a uh, paper, and Dandrovsky showed up. He introduced himself. He didn't need to. Everyone knows. <laughs> Anyhow, like, hi, it's like, he's like, hi, I'm Dan, you know. I like your work, whatever, et cetera. You know, I forgot what he said, but um, my jaw dropped to the floor. Student was just like, in you know, a complete <laughs> shock. That you know, this like uh, amazing person showed up and um, interacted with us. So that was just unbelievably kind moment. And then I really um, loved to see these um, women rock stars. You know, when I was a student, that includes Regina Barsley uh, at MIT and Rada Mihalcea uh, now at uh, Michigan, but she used to be elsewhere before and. Hong Ji, uh, now at UIUC, but she used to be elsewhere before. And um, I mean, I I worry a little bit that I'm, you know, there I I could really mention long list of names, but I'm so sorry that I'm unable to thank all of you. But plus my advisor, former advisor, Claire Cardi, she uh, encouraged me uh, so much because I was self-doubting all the time.
0: Thanks for listening. If you are enjoying the episode and would like to support this as an educational resource, please consider giving us a like, subscribe, comment, or review on whichever platform you are consuming the show. We are just getting started, and a little goes a long way in helping us cover costs.
1: All right, let's get into machine learning and natural language processing. What really is natural language processing? How, how do we start? You know, it's, it's easy. It's, it's so amazing what we have right now, uh, but what was it like in the winter, like before we had deep learning?
2: Oh yeah, nothing worked. So um you know it's interesting. Back in the days so we would call natural language processing. So it's a subfield of AI focusing on human language understanding and generation. So we sometimes called that as oh natural language understanding as a field name, NLU as well as NLG, so natural language generation. Um And um, nobody had any issue calling our field as NLU or NLG before. Now, you know, there's a lot of debate about, is it even right to ever use the word understanding when writing AI papers because we're overselling things? I don't know if you uh, encountered this type of... um, Uh, debate about I
1: always get criticized for overselling in my papers (laughs) but
2: (laughs) I mean you know I I do personally think it uh, you know I I think um, come on guys Um, uh, we, we were using that wording forever and why is this a problem now I think it's a problem now because now it actually starts working really well it seems that everything is under extra scrutiny than ever before but, yeah. um, of course, nothing is solved. It's solved. got a bigger
1: public lens, too, right? Yeah. Like it's, yeah. There's, a, there's a bigger, more people are paying attention now than ever, so yeah, I guess the scrutiny's kind of natural. Yeah. And then And then we sort of, and now it's over, right? That winter's over. Now we have these really cool algorithms. We have transformers, uh, we have attention, um, and we have this sequence-to-sequence problem. Um, what are these things?
2: Yeah, sequence to sequence is just uh, one convenient way of formulating a lot of NLP problems down to input-output pairs, so that we can then train, uh, supervise the model on a lot of input-output pairs. So input can be a document, output can be a summary, or an input can be a document plus a question you want to ask about the document, and then output might be the correct answer. So. Uh, that's what SIG2SIG is about. We can even use a sequence-to-sequence sequence for multimodal applications, like given an image as an input, generate a description of that image, or we can flip it so that given a description of an image, you generate an image. I guess in that case, the sequence is no longer sequence-like on, on one of the side, But So that's that. Um, ultimately, though, sig to sig approach Tends to be more like, okay, you know, I'm going to do supervised learning on a lot of examples. I personally feel or have a mixed feeling about sick to sick approaches being the ultimate approach to um, any of these language problems in the following sense. So, summarization as an example, we as a human never train ourselves over. Uh, tens of thousands of summarization examples to be able to summarize one sentence. You can do it right away. You just learn the language, then you're able to summarize right away. So I don't think it's actually, um, uh, it makes sense to do it that way. And the problem with the sequence-to-sequence training is that then it tends to be only good at problems where the supervision data um, was developed for. Which means if you switch out different domain, different style of text, different style of summarization even, then you're doomed. You have to somehow find that training data again. And that oftentimes is really, really hard and costly. So we generally might need to think outside the box, away from sick to sick approaches. Mm. But it's sort of like the easiest thing to do right now that does work right away.
1: Can you maybe give some intuition on this attention mechanism and why it's and why these transformer architectures are just so enabling for this problem?
2: Yeah. So basically, in the deep learning, there's this uh, moment before deep, uh, attention and after attention. Before attention, it looked as if nothing really worked. After attention, everything works. Uh, <laughs> with a bit of exaggeration, I think it's like attention combined with the transformer architecture that really. Uh, study the skyrocketing. Uh, but um, so attention is a mechanism for, uh, it's a learned mechanism to know where in the input you want to focus more on uh, for the purpose of solving a problem. And so if you're solving machine translation or summarization, then as you translate an input text or as you summarize an input text, you can imagine that you kind of want to attend over different portion of the input such that you know you're about to translate the next phrase or something or next uh, remainder of a text. So um, that's attention mechanism. It's learned way of knowing where to attend, and it has a very nice parallel to how human brain is like because we also tend to mm. have this attention mechanism to only pay attention to things that actually matters.
1: So you know, you mentioned that uh, you know in supervision the data is very important. Uh, it, and it is, right? Like getting good, high quality data, in my opinion, is almost everything Right when you do supervised learning. Um, there's a lot of hype right now on like semi-supervised learning and unsupervised learning. Um, why are these so powerful tools for helping us get the right data? And why do they work so well in natural language?
2: Yeah, so uh, self-supervised learning turns out to be a lot more powerful than we imagined, especially uh, mask prediction of which word is missing in the middle or which word comes next. And I suspect that uh, reason why this um, was more successful than any other training scheme is that there's just so much more data available that you can uh, use. Um, and it covers really broad range of human language phenomenon. And then um, it's uh, amenable to training very large models. Um, and so altogether, it seems that it's really an incredible recipe to learn some sort of uh, basic representation of language. Then that can be uh, fine-tuned uh, on different downstream tasks, so
1: I've talked to some of the more you know pure machine learning pure supervised learning guys or folks, and they always say you know the data is everything. it seems like you know in deep learning you give it more resources, you give it more data it just it almost monotonically improves and Using you know sequence to sequence and these semi-supervised and unsupervised techniques together, is just a huge explosion of data, right? That sort of enables you know these the more traditional supervised learning. Is, is this your intuition? Is that really what's going on?
2: That's a one way to describe it. Though uh, perhaps I want to say that it's all about, in my mind, it's all about information in the information yeah. theoretical sense. Mm. It's not just the size of the data. In fact, in my uh, research, research from my own group, we demonstrated that sometimes you can have a smaller data, but better results across the board. Then, Mm. you know, you might wonder, why is that? I thought, you know, larger is the better. (laughs) So the reason is, so this is uh, specifically about natural language inference task, where, you know, you need to worry about whether a pair of sentences is entailment or contradiction and neutral, there's a standard de facto data set that everyone has been using before, which is either SNLI or MNLI dataset, which is from Stanford. So Stanford NLI or multi-domain NLI. Um, so these data sets are very large, uh, maybe hundreds of thousands of examples, human annotated. Uh, but in our work, we demonstrate that we can use GPT-3 together with some other uh, algorithms and uh, combined with the human filters to make a smaller data, but harder data. So our data is smaller, about uh, uh, 25% of the de facto data set being used. Uh, but it's just like inherently harder and more ambiguous. And we found that when you trend model on our data, even though it was trend on smaller data, the out-of-the-domain performance across the board is better. And I speculate that what's going on is not just about the size, but the heart, the information quantity in some sense, or information complexity that mm. that data represent. So presumably, when the data size increase, it so happens that information amount, you know, in a the- information theoretic sense, has been also increasing. Uh, but if you imagine very large data that's more repetitive and, you know, very simple, but, you know, it's just more data, but it doesn't encompass uh, a lot of complex situations in language, then I don't think it's going to necessarily work better. And so I think it's not, in the end, it's not actually really about size, but it's likely to be about information.
1: Let's talk about uh, the language generation and conversational AI uh what are you working I, I you got a lot of projects in the space what are you excited about
2: oh um yeah i used to work on i guess um yeah i i, I did i have been excited about maybe conversational a i systems and long uh generation with long form coherence and um maybe um uh, better modeling uh people's mental state but all these things got sped up by larger models, so um, as a result, I've been focusing a little bit more on common sense uh, knowledge representation as opposed to um, uh, the uh, more directly generation problems. However, perhaps I can tell you a little bit about um, how uh, we found that when it comes to generation out of neural language models, currently what does work the best as a decoding time algorithm it's not just like a naive beam search or naive greedy search or naive uh, uh, sampling out of neural language models, but additional different decoding mechanism that deviates from the way that you are training language models. So there's basically training and testing mismatch that mm. turns out to be empirically powerful thing, depending on different application you are trying to do. And so that's really interesting why that's the case. It may have something to do with what you mentioned earlier about, oh, you know, philosophically, the fact that these models are trained on some learning objective doesn't feel right. Um, it might be that, building on that, it might be that um, these models are training on less than ideal objective function, you know, like this uh, maximum likelihood uh, or, or you know, uh, you know, you can view it as entropy. We we feel like this is well grounded and you know it's um, well justified uh, uh, objective function to use. But then uh, using that the same objective function as the scoring function for generating text doesn't seem well justified at all because it's not the case that we try to generate. Uh, text by optimizing which word has the best probability to come next because if we go by that, we sound very boring. We're just speaking exactly as expected. That would be really, really uh, not good. So a lot of the times when you see amazing text out of GPT-3 or Chat GPT, that amazingness happens only when there's some amount of sampling involved so that you sample out of the probability distribution. So that there's more surprises and there's this feel of creati- creativity. Uh, that mismatch is one of the, you know, not well understood open research yeah. question right now.
1: You know, you mentioned like how ge- like generating with like long term context, and you know when you go to ChatGPT, it'll give you long answers and it does seem coherent. Uh, how is it able to do this? Yeah. Or like, what, what are the challenges here in getting like such long term context out of these language models?
2: Uh, it seems like it's just handling it amazingly well, doesn't it? Especially like um, some long term discourse coherence. You know, if you ask these models to write, give me 10 book recommendations, then it actually does count 10. And then in between the book recommendation, it's even going to describe the book. And but it kind of remembers the big picture goal of this generation is to have this some kind of a structure hierarchical structure where you're supposed to you know give you ten book recommendations or ten steps to do something or ten devices of how to save your time. So these models are already able to do that. I wonder whether uh, what you know this makes me realize that when trained on really a lot of data. Using large enough models, uh, such long-term patterns are still patterns, pattern enough for these models to actually latch on and learn. Um, And um, it seems that uh, yeah, this is something that nobody was necessarily so coming, but it is what it is, and it's very exciting capabilities. Having said that, it's also not the case that it's actually precisely able to track all the uh, you know like uh claims that it had already made in its own writing no. it's not able to really track logical consistencies in minute details that it has uh, spoken out loud so then every now and then it does make completely nonsensical uh, claims that just doesn't make sense and so you know how do we address that is like a big open research question again
1: you know, you mentioned, I think you mentioned storytelling uh, a little bit. Will we be able to get these things to write like a massive mo- novel? Could the next Harry Potter be produced by ChatGPT? Or are yeah. we close? Or what are the challenges? Uh, I here? think
2: we're so far. Um, yeah. Not only, I don't think it can do that kind of uh, long term novel. Uh, where there's no inconsistencies with character development, you know, suddenly forgetting, following up someone or like reintroducing somebody or, you know, there's this consistency issue. But let's just say short article. How about New York op-ed? Can GPT, Chat GPT actually write, uh, you know, op-ed that's actually relevant in today's political backdrop? And then able to provide uh, reasonable opinion, I doubt. I think it's hmm. able to regurgitate. If people actually wrote about it, then it's able to regurgitate and create a new article, brand new article. That kind of feels like a very um, familiar line of reasoning. But I don't think it's able to come up with brand new op-ed either, even if it's a short.
1: You know, we talk about the Turing test and whether or not you know it. It's better than the current human. And I, I say this jokingly, uh, I do wonder if ChatGPT could have written a better ending to Game of Thrones, because yeah. that, <laughs> that, was, that was very logically inconsistent. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, what about one, one thing that's been really cool lately is the connection to language and vision. Um, you know, they're both sort of system one perception sorts of problems. Uh, You know, one thing I know you've worked on is language grounding with vision. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah. um, My hypothesis is that language is so deeply integrated with the perceptual reasoning, visual reasoning, um, and the system one reasoning and system two reasoning all around. Um, In fact, Daniel Kahneman's This original visual of, you know, three systems, perception and intuition and system two also uh, has this uh, layer where language is actually involved with both the system one and system two. So in this sense, um, uh, that seems to be true. And even when, you know, mathematicians, they say, they tell me that when they actually do math proof, they really have to think through language, even though, you know, the proof might be in uh, mathematical forms. Even like the way that they define symbols, they still need to uh, rely on language. So things are very interconnected in this, in that sense. Um, yeah, so it's almost as if we use language as some kind of communication medium between different modalities or different conceptual things. Uh, and that connection is uh, really very exciting to me.
1: I think of all the crazy AI stuff I've seen over the years, the I think the one that blows my mind the most is stable diffusion, you know, DALI, AI art. It it takes these two seemingly orthogonal modes of perception and it just connects them so beautifully. Like it's so it's just it it just seems so powerful right now. Was it was this the most surprising one to you? Are you surprised still it works the way that it does?
2: Oh yeah. I, I is, was um Possibly even more surprised by Dali two than I mean um, yeah I was so I was very surprised by the Dali two I was very excited about what it was capable of. Um, I also realized that it might be that generation is harder for much uh, f- harder for humans than understanding, hmm. whereas for machines it's the other way. It might be that for hmm. machines generation is h- easier than underending at the
1: moment can we we linger on that why 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 is that the case that's that's a very good insight
2: uh because um you know if you try to just generate really good blob of text that you know you're willing to revise for the purpose of writing some good ending of game of thrones i assume that you're going to try multiple times and do prompt engineering and then you're going to select the most promising one, and then edit it, right? Um, so uh, for that, uh, but, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it can generate a lot of uh, good materials for you to be inspired by. Um, yeah. But the reason hmm. why you end up doing the selection and you end up doing editing is because the machine is not really truly understanding what it says enough to be able to actually not make those mistakes in the first place. And so another way to think about it is that if you test the GPT-3 with really, really simple QA problems, so from my group, we made the social IQA data set. It's like IQ problem, but social IQ problems. And it's as simple as this, you know, it's like, okay, Alex and John, you know, may have been in a boxing match and Alex defeated John. Now, you ask, how does John feel about this? Obviously not happy. Uh, But because we're asking about John instead of Alex, which was the subject of a sentence, uh, in general, we found that GPT-3 is better with the understanding what subject feels. But if you ask about the other person in a sentence that's not as highlighted, then It doesn't sort of like tell the difference and then it makes a mistake. If you also flip, you know, the question like, you know, which is too big, which is too small with antonyms, or if you introduce the negation, then that's where it makes a simple mistakes. You know, you wonder, did it actually understand anything at that point? And so um, it seems that the precise understanding, even down to very simple concept, is not quite there yet. It's not robust at all. Which is quite striking, but it's able to generate really coherent and fluent text with minor, you know, mistakes here and there. Um, similarly, with image generation, when it comes to artistic image generation, you know, it's just like mind-blowing. It's better than me, you know, better than many others. And I actually do use one of these Dali art as my um, uh, presentation background these days. Because I, I love it so much. It's like a retro-futuristic depiction of, um, I don't know, some game environment in its own way, it's lovely. On the other hand, you know, to be honest, um, uh, my friend Jack Hassel, he had to do this parameter engineering on and on and on and on until, you know, something good came out finally. Uh, and then a lot of this uh, art, if you actually really pay attention, some of the details actually don't make sense. And then if you really care about the semantic correctness of the image that it generates and, you know, you try to do very compositional generation that, you know, I really want red head on top of this, you know, person who's about to take the train. And, you know, their head may be there, but, you know, it's like suddenly red muffler instead of a red head because the machine really didn't understand the... Uh, concept correctly so that's why I speculate maybe generation right now is easier than understanding
1: when you were talking about you know generating and like how we will generate some text and then we'll edit it Uh, usually the text is nonsense uh, I couldn't help but think about sort of like the advisor-advisee relationship, especially when you're a young student. You know, you generate a paper, it's mostly nonsense, and then you have a someone come in and edit it.
2: Oh, yeah. You know, that's usually reading comprehension problem of the student. Yeah. It's not just Even generation a speaker, problem, but yeah.
1: reading comprehension. Even as a native speaker, that's something I really struggle with. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go to common sense now. Um which part do you want to do first? Do you want to do the physical side or the social side? Doesn't matter. Let's do the physical side. So what? What, what sort of projects do you have in this space? What are you working on?
2: Some of my early research was called the verb physics, that uh, uh, looked at um, the action dynamics a uh, verb on action verb might imply. So if you throw something, it kind of implies that. Uh, the object you're throwing must be lighter than you uh, in general. And um, it might be even smaller. You know, it doesn't have to be smaller, but it might be smaller. And then as a result of a throwing momentarily, that object is moving faster than you. So even in the language space, you can already reason about what happens before and after and the properties of the objects involved in that scene. Um, And then more recently, I started looking at language and vision or language and simulation environments in which we try to uh, reason about things either by learning in the simulation environment and or by uh, learning the multimodal alignment between images and text, even audios. And so uh, we've been investigating different ways to find grounded representation of concepts and actions so that we can learn action dynamics or preconditions and post-conditions of different events that can happen in life.
1: Can you maybe speak to like the, like the experiments for these sorts of projects?
2: Yeah. Like the, um, the- uh, in one project called the Piglet, uh, which is based on this, um, virtual environment called the Thor, which is the house of interactions. So in this house, you can experiment as an AI agent. You can throw a cup and see what happens. Well, the cup will break in that house of, uh, uh, interactions, and then you can boil eggs. And then you can see that the boil is, uh, boiled eggs is cooked and hot, um, so you can do actions and then you can learn what happens so that you can then learn to predict what happens before and after taking an action to an object in your environment. So, uh, you know, one fun test we do in the test time that didn't happen in the training time is what happens when you have a mug and it's filled with water and then you drain that mug into a sink so that, you know, now water goes to the sink, Right. Um, and then we ask language models, uh, what do you think about sink situation right now, you know? So uh, the water is now in the sink, uh, but no longer in the mug. And so, you know, it's like super easy, trivial reasoning that humans can do, but neural language models, it doesn't know. So since the water disappeared from the mug, maybe it also disappeared from sink, you know, it gets confused about these things.
1: It's really trying to sort of get over this problem of induction a little bit, right? That you know, these traditional machine learning techniques have. Uh, that's really amazing that it was able to do that. Yeah. What about the social side of things?
2: Yeah, uh, we uh, work on uh, what are the, you know, tip- stereotypical mental state of people before and after taking an action. So if X repels Y's attack, um, then X might be the kind of person who's physically strong enough to repel Y's attack, maybe brave, you know, I I, I would just run away from the scene. I'm not going to fight back. Um, I'm not very confrontational. So it says something about um, people's um, different properties and mental state. You know, after repelling Y's attack, X might feel proud and, you know, strong. And then Y might feel frustrated. And then Y might fight back or run away. So, you know, you don't know for sure what will happen for sure, but you kind of have some reasonable expectations around what other people might do in reaction to what you do. So that's the social common sense knowledge. And we encoded a bunch of this as a knowledge graph written in semi-structured text. And then we trained the neural model on top, which we named nicknamed as COMET because it's Common Sense Transformers in short. Um, And then it turns out it actually generalizes surprisingly well. So, you know, when I was having this kind of surprises was in 2019 and 20, when things were based only on GPT-2 still. And the kind of generalization I saw was truly jaw-dropping. Like, you know, sometimes I give this online demo in my actual talk and people ask me adversarial questions on the fly and on the stage, I would tell them, eh, you know, that's too adversary, It's not going to work, but okay, sure. Let me show you how my system does not work. And then, you know, I run the query, and then I am so surprised on the stage. Everybody can see how I'm so surprised, visibly, that it does work. So here's the one actual example that X repels Y's attack in a chess game. So we don't have that kind of example in the training data. So, you know, no, it's not going to work. It's an intellectual game now, you know. So I tried, and then it's like, oh, X feels now um, uh, more competitive and intelligent and, you know, uh, victorious. And before winning this game, X must uh, know something about chess game and owns chess board perhaps and uh, might be seen as someone smart. So suddenly all these predictions uh, moved to more intellectual uh, space. And so that's when I realized that ah these neural models are really good at generalization. So in, in that regard when GPT3 came out, even though I was surprised, I wasn't as surprised in some sense because I could totally imagine that with that level of um, data and size, yeah, it's gonna work even better, sure for sure. Um, but having said all of this, uh, although it generalized well, it has a lot of corner cases if you're you know, determined to find the flaws by being adversarial on purpose. So that's where I truly don't know what is the depth and breadth of these corner cases. It might be that it's surprisingly hard to address them all in a reliable manner.
1: Yeah. Previously, you mentioned uh, you used a MaxSat solver somewhere. Uh, which is really cool because it's hard to use these, It's 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 a very hard problem to use these powerful logic solvers in machine learning. How did you do that here?
2: Yeah. Uh, so Maxus said uh, I did know about this during my PhD because I'm from Cornell and you know they had the uh, uh, researchers professors who were active in that space. So even during my own PhD, I used to use Maxus in order to solve some of my structured inference problems in. Uh, language problems like sentiment analysis uh, that has some kind of a structure such that there are opinion holders and the target of opinions and then different kinds of opinions and they might point to each other and maybe you want to reason about them simultaneously and so forth. So, um, And then, you know, what's really fascinating is that because these neural networks are not very consistent and logically robust yet, uh, in our new work called the myuric prompting, it's uh, our paper at EMNOP last year. Uh, we used the set solver again in order to make uh, uh, common sense reasoning off from neural language models more robust. And we can really jump from you know chain of thought that everybody probably heard about that uh, keeps prompting neural language models with a different chains of, or, you know, steps of reasoning. And so that if you do that, you can improve the consistency of neural network by a large margin, but still, you're still really, really far from solving the problem. But we found that if we do that kind of consistency check, not just by chaining reasoning, but in a more uh, collective inference way through this uh, maximum satisfiability problem, then we can dramatically enhance the performance even further up.
1: You know, we've we've talked about a lot of different things. Um, what do you think currently, based off of what we have so far, or sort of the big open questions, uh, and what are sort of the trendy ideas we have?
2: Uh, overly trendy idea right now would be uh, prompt engineering. Yeah, where you know my postdoc Raj Prithviraj he would actually characterize the current phenomenon as people are not prompt engineering GPT-3. GPT-3 is a prompt engineering people, <laughs> which has a truth to it because, you know, you think you prompt engineer GPT-3, but actually you have to really try hard to come up with a good prompt. So you have, you, yeah. you are getting prompt engineered by GPT-3. Um So I think that's overly trendy. I think, um, What I consider as some really exciting open research questions going forward is a better integration of logical reasoning or symbolic reasoning because I am skeptical that just, you know, transformers' neural magic alone can do very robust mathematical reasoning, for example, or very robust fact-checking. So it might be that we really need to figure something out how to ground neural reasoning with more symbolic uh, uh, reasoning. And so that's one thing I'm super excited about. And in some sense, my prompting I mentioned earlier is one such effort, although uh, I, I think there are a lot of things that uh, could have been better with our approach. Um, another type of open question that I'm super excited about is knowledge model. I personally don't think language model or image model is knowledge model. Uh, these language models and image models do have do reflect a lot of knowledge about uh, how the world works, to the extent to which the surface patterns allowed them to learn. But the problem is they only learn what tends to be reported in the raw text or raw, raw images, and then don't really learn about the concept in the way that humans are able to learn. So really figuring that out, uh, and then uh, somehow build a knowledge model. I think that would be super exciting. And this actually relates to your earlier comment about, you know, feeling uh, not satisfied with the objective function that these m- machines are optimizing for. So when the yeah. machine is optimizing for which word comes next? That's so not human-like at all. You know, we humans want to make sense of the world. So our objective function is not about which world comes next. It's about making sense of the world. You know, perhaps which situation comes next. Or, you know, making sense of your intent, you know, and uh, making sense of other people's uh, actions. And so we generally want to make sense of the world. So we want to have this world model that makes sense to us that is consistent in our in our view so uh, the the objective function may need to be there to, you know in in knowledge as opposed to reproducing the surface pattern that we observe in fact humans are terrible at memorizing any text that you we read you know we we can only abstract away the gist of it and then remember only that if we are lucky enough but we can never reproduce verbal team, you know, the text that we read. And so maybe that's another thing that uh, we do need to reconsider, you know, can, can we think about how we uh, design machine learning so that it actually abstract away in the way that humans do, and then try to reason about the consistency of a world model based on the current observation, as opposed to just trying to predict which word comes
1: next. So one of my favorite movies is the movie Arrival, and uh, to spoil it a little bit, uh, they explore this sort of like linguistic idea. The I hope I say this correct. The Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, um, and it has a the, the whole movie is based off of this idea, and it sort of says that the languages that you speak control all of your cognition. Do you subscribe to this?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, to some degree, yeah, but I wouldn't say I subscribe to all of it in the sense that there's limit to how much it's going to control your cognition. I think, you know, some no. people are able to come out of that boundary. So, uh, But I, I can sort of say that if the language doesn't support uh, a wide variety of color spectrum, then maybe you see less colors, you know. Uh, Because language doesn't really force you to see them in some sense. And so to some degree, probably that's true. But then I can also imagine that, you know, some more artistically minded person who explores a lot of uh, different color variations might still be able to see different colors anyways.
1: You know, I only speak one language. Um, But, you know, I, I know mathematics, which is in itself its own language. And when I really learned mathematics... This hypothesis sort of applied to me. It really changed the way I see reality. Uh, and s- something similar when I learned how to program. Uh, it really did sort of change the way I, I-, I see everything. Um, am I just learning how to do new reasoning? or, or, um, or Yeah. What, what, what do you think is happening here?
2: I think it's just some kind of mental framework through which you can see things. So... Programming language does define the way that you reason about pro programs or algorithms. Um, and then, you know, if you're using C++, you would think about algorithms very differently from you're using Python. I don't know if you even used the C++ ever. You're too young for that, probably. I did. In my
1: undergrad. In my undergrad, <sighs> that's what we Whoa. used, yeah. That okay.
2: was- and then, you know, As a Korean person, I do feel like somewhat, you know, I'm the same person, but I do feel like a different language, you know, Korean versus English does cast different uh, feeling or tone about myself. So to some degree, I think it's almost like a lens through which I see things and I even, you know, be somewhat controlled by that lens because I, I I'm supposed to you know portray certain kinds of a social interface through that language, um, so to some degree, I think you're right, but um, I'm still the same person
1: <laughs> on on this thread, and I am sort of shamelessly stealing this question from uh, Chomsky. Um, is natural language processing engineering, or is it science? By engineering, engineering, are we trying to build something that's useful, or are we trying to help understand reality?
2: I think uh, fundamentally computer science is a little bit more computer engineering-like by that definition of science versus engineering. Um, And, you know, uh, it's not the case that computer science tries to truly understand, or A.I., the goal of AI is not particularly about truly understanding human intelligence as a science subject, nor the current goal is trying to understand uh, artificial intelligence as a you know object of science, but rather building systems that does work. So in that regard, I think he has a point that it feels more like engineering. I suspect that there's a bit of a subtext to that question, though, that you know maybe science is more noble than engineering or something. And if there's such a subtext, then I disagree. Um, Nothing wrong with the building useful things. And um, in fact, if we use that useful tools, it might actually help us to better understand humanities as well. If we really truly have good detectors of hate speech, it might, you know, give us new insight about our own uh, discrimination as uh, human beings against other
1: people. I want to ask you, um, I'm going somewhere with this, but what do you think humanity's greatest invention was?
2: Oh, I don't I've know. I've asked a lot of people this. Uh, so broadly, then,
1: I mean, I could say language. And that, that's 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 sort of where I'm thinking, right? Like... I myself, I, I I can't have a thought without my conscious verbalizing it. And it, it makes me wonder how, how how did humans think without it? How did we reason without it?
2: Oh um, yeah,
1: mentalis. So I mean, you think song, you like, like,
2: don't have a mentalis? You only think uh, through language? Human language? I think
1: so. I, I really think Are so. You sure? Like maybe I do it passively, but like when I really focus, I always converted to english in my conscious interesting do you
2: uh it depends about you know like the kind of um subconscious reasoning i was trying to describe you earlier yeah. in act one uh yeah that's not, not natural language <laughs> because like i yeah. i end up doing a lot of uh, multi-threaded reasoning simultaneously in what I consider as vectors. I feel like I think in vectors in this case. Here's another example, actually. Since you mentioned earlier about advisor-student relationship about paper (coughs) revision. Sometimes I read a paper, I don't like something, and I know for sure that this phrasing is not right. There's a problem. But sometimes then I have to struggle to articulate uh, why I feel that way. And I try this way and try that way. Eventually, I come up with some reason that I feel good enough. But um, I wouldn't, you know, it, it, uh, it takes me some effort to try to unpack why I feel something is not right. Sometimes, So these are, this happens when things are slightly off, by the way. If it's like obviously very wrong, no problem. But when things are slightly off, and then I'm trying to think about the unwanted connotation or implications that this statement might make and what that is. Uh, that kind of a moment is when I realize it cannot just be that I'm thinking everything in natural language, but there's a lot of these um, thought factors.
1: Yeah, I, I talked to a, I talked to a uh, philosopher of language recently. And he he sort of described this as like a chicken egg problem, you know, like how can you have conscious thought without language? Which came first? Nobody really knows. Um, relating this back to AI, um, if if we got a if we had an AI that really understood language, it somehow had that right objective function. Could we then have the consciousness discussion?
2: Oh, well, um, maybe maybe we are we could have a. Yeah, we could have a conversation, but you know what consciousness means. Check out this book; it's actually surprising. The definition is surprisingly not what we mean mm. in this kind of a conversation. Um, Can you give
1: it if you don't mind? Oh, so I, I there's a put different put the theories
2: spot. in cognitive science world. Yeah. So one theory is that there's this uh, global network, broadcast network that uh, might have to do with uh, broadcasting information everywhere. Um, I think there's another theory I forgot. I, I'm not very good at remembering things right, but um, uh, versus I feel like um, consciousness in the context of AI discussion of future computers or future AI has to do with more like this mystic feeling of human-like uh, capabilities of a machine where maybe there's more of emotion and self-awareness. So uh, I think that's a different story. But yeah, I mean, if something uh, has input-output capabilities that's just so good, so human-like, at that point, you know, can we say that it has consciousness or not? Yeah, good question.
1: I don't know. We've talked uh, a lot about reasoning on this podcast you know, we've talked about abductive reasoning, deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning. There's this thing called, there's this common sense thing. Um, Classical computers are really good at deductive reasoning. It seems like machine learning is getting really good at inductive and abductive. Could one emerge from the other or vice versa?
2: I personally, I think they are different things. Were different obter- uh, our observation of different modes of reasoning. I personally sus- speculated that um, human brain is not one thing, but it's collection of a different mode of reasoning. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes we do multiple modes of reasoning simultaneously. Uh, but I don't know whether one dominates the other necessarily, or one subsumes the other. Even, I don't know. But why do you, you ask? Know, wh- do you speculate that maybe the case? I feel
1: I, I feel like a lot of people, especially in the machine learning community, feel like deductive reasoning emerges. And I'm skeptical. So I I'm just mm. sort of curious.
2: Yeah, I you know. I mean also emerges. What does emerging mean? Getting lucky yeah, with know. a few examples, <laughs> but still making mistakes in, you know, twenty three or thirty percent of the time. It depends on like what they mean.
1: Yeah. Everybody has like a different definition of AI. Uh, how would you define it?
2: Oh, I'm happy with any uh, computer computational systems that uh, try to solve some narrow or broad aspect of intelligence problems, something to do with language or something to do with the perception. Even Google search is a case of intelligence problem to me. I see.
1: Uh, let's talk about uh, morals a little bit. Um, Can machines learn morals? Uh,
2: Good question. Um, So we, in my lab, we did this this Delphi experiment and we found that it's surprisingly better than we would have imagined, but unsurprisingly not robust when you try Mm. to deliberately come up with adversarial examples. Uh, Now, there's a different question about, should machines learn morality? I personally believe that it totally should because AI programs are already making decisions or predictions that have moral implications or safety implications. So in order to avoid predictions or generations that have such implications, this includes racism and sexism, by the way. Um, So in order to avoid those cases or, you know, generating output that can harm people, even if it's not racism or sexism, but Having safety uh, implications, uh, so that is a case of a, um, um, moral, you know, moral implications. So I do think AI need to learn human values, such that it can at least avoid obvious harms. It shouldn't, on the other hand, enforce a particular moral framework to everybody because humans don't do that. You know, we humans. Um, For example, respect each other's religions if they have one, as opposed to enforcing I mean enforcing one's religion to other people, that would be like really horrible in general. You know, that's where wars begin. We shouldn't do Mm -hmm. that and AI shouldn't do that. Just AI should reflect different worldview, different moral frameworks, different values, different cultural norms, while avoiding really obvious harms.
1: You ever I don't even know how to ask this question. You ever you ever sort of think of it from like a meta-ethical lens? Like how we get our ethics, not necessarily applying our like our moral system, but how can we get a new ethic?
2: Uh what do you mean? Like we meaning we humans, how did we acquire it? Or we meaning how do we
1: build the machines to do it? So like, like where do our ethics come from? You know, like it seems it seems very possible that we could we 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 somehow formalize ethic or some culture's interpretation of an ethic, and then we do supervised learning, and then we ask it to just go to town, right? Um, do do you th- do you think we could maybe do it for something you know richer, like oh yeah yeah yeah, like 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 figuring out like why our ethics are the way they are, yeah, and what they should be.
2: So there's a lot of this research I realized done outside the computer science, such as moral philosophy and moral yeah. psychology or moral development psychology even about how human babies acquire moral concept. You know, mm. to some degree, they acquire this from observations because at first they cannot move very much, so they kind of watch. And it's really striking that early on, they already start having some notion of helping someone they volunteer to help, they don't have to help. But you know, when they see someone struggling, they feel like to help. So it might be that to some degree, it's sort of some sort of like innate quality that human brain already has. Um, And then there is some speculation or study research about how uh, we might also learn for ourselves, which is also why eventually children might defy their parents you know, and then support different political parties even. Uh, And then, you know, there are cases in which uh, these young adults as they grow up and then start having certain belief uh, and moral agenda, they might even be willing to do some uh, uh, potentially immoral acts like lying or even violence because they feel like, you know, the means justify their ends for what they believe in. So uh, in this regard, they don't just acquire moral concepts from just supervision. They think for themselves, and then they develop their own ethical viewpoints. So uh, humans are some combination of, uh, probably combination of innate uh, design of our brain being that way, combined with uh, upbringing, where parents tell them what to do or teachers telling them what to do, and then you know we try to abide by that to some degree and then you know eventually we start having our own belief um, so it's a combination of the three and it could be that AI also needs to be a combination of the three or maybe you know it's a combination of the two of the three who knows it's a wildly unexplored area of research
1: you know I was wondering um if we, like, like say we fix a culture, fix an ethic, right? And we just get so consumed. If, a, if AI keeps going the way it is now, uh, we're almost, I, I wonder one day if we're even gonna interact with other human beings. We might only ever interact with other AI. I don't know, uh, down the line, down the line, like several years. Uh, sometimes I wonder if, if we program like a culture, program a culture or an ethic, will th- could this be the end of culture? the end of ethics? Um, no, in the sense that, sense that... So
2: maybe the subtext of it is that humans somehow choose to interact only with AI because human likes AI so much. Uh, I, on the other hand, have... Uh, who knows who's right? But I speculate that humans have a bias toward bio-beings. So mm. we humans, I think, you know... It doesn't matter what you and I think, by the way. Just people at large, they might have a bias toward bio beings. So even as AI becomes a powerful tool, potentially replacing some jobs far into the future, some humans might still want to opt for human companions, human doctors, human lawyers, uh, human drivers, if they want it. And then then there's uh, some possibility that, by the way, that human might be no longer human as in original. uh, how human used to be in 2022. In the future, human might be some combination between human and AI in the sense that, you know, um, before you do podcasts, you know, you ask GPT-5 or (laughs) GPT-10 to come up with all the philosophical questions and then you revise a little bit, but it's actually (laughs) GPT-10 doing all the job. Who knows? And then, you know, Counter to that, I ask GPT-11 to answer your questions, and then I revise mine <laughs> a little bit. Um, but I, you know, I, my speculation though is that um, this culture and ethics, these are, first of all, moving targets. We tend to uh, revise our thoughts around it as humans going forward. And then the the other thing is this, we are very different being. Like uh, one thing that I think a lot about these days is value pluralism. Mm. We individuals, that's something really fascinating about human learning. You and I have a different learning objective. Uh, And then, you know, other people have a different learning objective too. So, you know, some people's learning objective is to get as good grade as possible, while others' learning objective might be as having many papers as possible. While uh, yet other people might care more about what I want to do you know I'm just interested in this and then other people might worry more about whatever is getting tweeted the most is exactly what I want to work on and then you know some people want to uh, devote their time and energy by being anti-ai speaking person while other one other people want to do something else so I think really the amazing thing about the humanities at large in my mind is this diversity of people's values and their preferences. If we lose it, it's gonna be horrible, I think, horrible. So AI really shouldn't, uh, my hope is AI should never ever reduce the diversity of people and rather encourage individual development and you know fulfillment, so that's my wishful thought. Um, and if so, then culture will not die because you know people will just be different and then explore different things again. So
1: I hope. Let's talk about. Let's let's be a bit more optimistic. Maybe let's talk about AI for social good. I know this is something you've worked on a little bit. Um, what do you think are the? What have you worked on? What do you think? What do you think we should be working on, to do social good?
2: Yeah. So actually, um, you know, I never imagined I would work on Delphi or, you know, that kind of system. It all started because I was interested in addressing bias, unjust bias, stereotypes that Mm. uh, make marginalized groups more marginalized because, in part because, you know, I was subjected to that kind of cultural norms growing up, which I realized was detrimental in my development in early life so I'm more of a late bloomer as a result and then uh, I had to overcome so much Uh, the you know things that people told me when I got uh, my job you know one professor came to me at a conference told me that you know that you got your job only because you're a woman right like I still cannot forget this this actually one actually this actual conversation that did happen and the thing is this is not even the one story that I have. It's a uh, recording things going on and on. And so, you know, okay, but, you know, it happened to me and it's okay if, if it happened to me because I'm resilient and tolerant, to whatever. But the bigger problem that I see is the next generation students who I realize is also subject to this type of stereotypes, uh, which is, you know, uh, very difficult for me to look at. So... So my lifetime mission is to do something about it. And as a result, I started working on uh, computational methods that can understand, better understand these hidden biases in language that reinforces stereotypes uh, that people have about different gender and different uh, racial backgrounds. Uh, and so it started from there. And naively, I used to think it's just that, but then I realized The nuanced problems are almost always about common sense problems. And then, you know, they're somewhere in between uh, just like a simple racism detection versus more of this moral uh, questions. So I realized that everything is interconnected. So that's how I started working on. And really the problem that we face with the AI models, uh, having unjust bias and toxicity is human problem it's all coming from humans being sometimes horrible to each other. Uh, They lie to each other, they are unfair to each other, unfortunately, Uh, especially the online web data reflects that. So it's almost like AI today, in my mind, is mirror reflection of what humans are. Uh, And so the question is, can we make humans better somehow by uh being able to help revising reducing toxicity and unjust biases uh going forward, and so you know that's one way to do AI for social good right now fake news is a huge problem, yeah. so that's, that's something else we need to worry about and I broadly like you know research that tries to help with uh medical challenges. We really need to do more such research.
1: I feel like misinformation is a huge problem in today's society. Um, you know what?
2: Do you think GPT-10's not gonna solve it? <laughs> That's exactly when understanding is not there, you know, understanding yeah. is not there, so it cannot really detect all this misinformation. Yeah.
1: Do you think it'll be AI will be misused in this sense? Like say somebody comes up with a model that can perfectly classify fake news. Um, Oh I'll, yeah, someone will probably claim this eventually. Yeah. Um, uh, can anything can be it? misused. So how, how can we like like, like let's say so, let's say someone did propose this model, and people started trusting it. I sometimes worry if we really should.
2: <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So uh, I think the problem is this: there's no perfect fake news classifier possible. Period. Because yeah. even human beings who don't agree, what is the fake news? You know, where did the COVID virus came from? Some people believe in one news. uh, Other people believe in another news. Is the vaccine actually working or not? Some people believe the vaccine doesn't work. Um, In in fact, some, you know, uh, 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 president of a country might not even believe that very much, (laughs) you know, to some degree. So, um, you know, I think there's one big problem with misinformation is that it's actually used as a tool by political parties and in that context it's really difficult to have like a gold label that people actually agree on so um, that's one challenge why i don't think there's going to be perfect classifier ever ever but even if it's potentially feasible maybe maybe the problem is that I just don't think it's possible. So then, you know, somebody can use that as some kind of a certificate of their fake news as, look, my news is genuine. That's what AI said. Um, so should we believe it? So probably going forward, one of the really important uh, societal action that we need to think about is AI uh, literacy. Almost it's like uh, we need to educate people at large to understand the limitation yeah. of AI such that we don't blindly trust it, but it's just a reference point. And then ideally AI systems should be able to provide the why so that we can actually look at the evidence and explanations and then judge for ourselves whether that uh, decision makes sense or not.
1: You know these models, you know they are going out to the public, but I don't think they're still completely uh, mainstream yet. I am a little afraid of sort of the, the. there's gonna be a huge, I, I'm predicting there's gonna be a huge automation bias crisis once we do get to that point. Um, are you afraid of that?
2: I think I am maybe less optimistic that AI will be that good that soon. Plus um, I do hope that uh, we can do something about this AI literacy issue though. Yeah. Um, so that people are, Better aware of limitation of AI and you know how to interact with AI in the way that people know how to interact with Google search today, or I should say Bing search, <laughs> or you search, <laughs> you.com search. We don't expect that everything is going to be correct, right?
1: Yeah, this, that's an interesting point. Like the traditional Google search, it's a bit more deductive, right? In its nature. Yeah, and you know a ChatGPT Google search. It's just not precise enough. I yeah. Think, to, it's, it's, it's a different it's a different product. It's a fundamentally different product. I really don't think it's going to replace Google search. Nope.
2: Um, Nor journalist. Journalists can relax. Though I can imagine journalists might actually write better as uh better news articles using ChatGPT as draft writer. That yeah, you can see. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm going to use it for my thesis when I do write it. But Ooh. Uh, <laughs> I'll edit it. I'll edit it. Or maybe I won't. Maybe I cut this part out of the. Podcast.
2: So long as it's yeah. So long as you proofread, <laughs> that's okay.
1: Yeah. Can we talk? Maybe about like, it, it feels like we will pass the Turing test eventually, or to some extent. Maybe maybe you you disagree. We never will. I don't know. What what will the post Turing test society kind of look like? What what will be the good? What will be the bad?
2: Oh. Uh, so I realize how skeptical I am about, yeah. <laughs> about um, uh, you know, like fundamentally, I really think we got to solve concept learning problem yeah. or else. Uh, I really don't think I'll be fooled by GPT-whatever, uh, that it's a human actually. Because I, I know how to trip up the system. I, I think, yeah. you know, I, I want to believe. But um, if it really understood everything, hypothetically speaking, oh, it's gonna change the entire world so much. So we better prepare for it right now. Uh, you know, jobs and the way people interact with each other and everything.
1: Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about the good for a bit. You know, like I, I think one problem the world has is well, there's, there's more. It seems like there's more men than women, right? And this is sort of creating a bunch of lonely men. Uh, and people are lonely for other reasons too. Um, this could really help with that. You think, right? It's like, find. Do you think people will find companionship?
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some lonely people will uh, get some uh, um, companionship from it. That I can totally see. Especially old folks, uh, people who are very, very shy, might end up. Doing that uh, as well
1: I see Twitter ads for startups that are already trying to do this I, I don't know how yeah. successful they will be right now yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I saw this in an episode of black mirror uh, what about like one of the most devastating feelings is when you lose a loved one
2: yeah right? oh yeah
1: Tra- training an AI to sort of even though you know they're not real just to sort of help heal a wound yeah you
2: know yeah do you, th- do you think
1: this will be useful or yeah. Or do you, do you think it'll just feel fake?
2: People are different. I, you know, that's um, one fundamental belief I have is that people are different. I can totally see that for some people, this is a wonderful thing. Um, you know, is it healthy thing? I don't know. Maybe it is so long as there's no side effect for that person's life.
1: Um, but I can see that happening. What about the bad? Like, like, say we have these you know fancy chatbots that are Turing test possible. What could the most malicious do with it? Probably boils
2: down to people doing horrible things to each other using yeah. it, right? Um, but otherwise, if a machine becomes so good at it, I wonder whether it's going to make people better at it too, somehow, like if a machine hmm. is so good. And then we'll people keep practicing it. interacting with it, and then machine might like, guide the person to be more polite and pleasant. who knows if it's that good then
1: um, maybe the first thing that comes to my mind is like scamming uh, I know recently I was extremely I'm pretty sure that this the scammer was like a was a very professional one because they even sounded like the the person the person was intimidating somebody I knew, and their voice even sort of matched it a little bit Oh. It scared the hell out of me uh, yeah well that sounds not good cur- this technology you know voice synthesizers mm. just like bots for scamming yeah uh, how, how this is, this hopefully security of, research
2: should catch up <laughs> um i, I mean hope. social
1: it, it's hard to it's hard to do security engineering for social when when for these social engineering sort of problems though
2: I mean, as in what I meant was when you speak to somebody over the phone, I assume that, you know, the scammer is faking both the video and audio as well as the account. But if account is not hacked, that would help. Somehow if the account is verified and there's, you know, signature that verifies the genuineness of the account, that would help. But if the account is hacked and, you know, That's a different story. Uh, Right now, I think, you know, we kind of avoid this misinformation in part by checking the source to the point that, you know, if somebody says something and I don't trust that person, some famous person that I don't trust, whatever this person says, I might first doubt. Uh, So that's sort of like a source-based checking that we tend to rely on. And same deal with the news article, you know, depending on which news media Uh, news is from, we have a different level of trust. And so, it might help to some degree, but, you know, if uh, we talk to anybody on any... I don't know. So, if a phone call is safely protected, right now, you know, usually um, phone calls are reasonably... um, I I guess even that's fakeable. The phone number itself is... uh, can be easily hacked,
1: but I want to go into consumerism. I feel like like today, we're obsessed with consuming. Um, it almost feels like it's turning into our purpose. Um, what are your thoughts on AI and consumerism? Um, you know we have a lot of people are throwing out this idea of surveillance capitalism. You know Google knows that your daughter is pregnant before she does, um, based off of her search history. Um, but there's a lot of convenience to it right like AI does make it easier to consume um you have any thoughts here
2: yeah I mean it seems that the the problem boils down to this advertisement right yeah uh because uh, if there's no advertisement then it would be better but the advertisement these days are so like blended into the social media content itself Personally, I feel like this really boils down to not just consumerism, but also there's another aspect of it, which is uh, dramatization and um, uh, you know, increasing engage- engagement by provoking more violent and uh, uh, divisive uh, content, right? Yeah. So for me, these two things are both more of a real problem that impacts human society already right now, with or yeah, without yeah. AGI tomorrow, it's already badly influencing us right now. Uh, in both the cases, there are actually humans involved in controlling the AI behavior, algorithm behavior, because it's humans who decide whether you know you encourage more clicks, more engagement at the cost of uh, letting violence happen or not. So it, this seems to be where really um, some kind of regulation can really help Such that maybe social media companies, if there will be a next one, um, should really, um, ideally, the company itself should try to do the right thing by trying to promote some kind of benefits and goodness in the humanity, for example, by... Promoting ideas about minimalism, or you know, climate change, uh, helping with the climate change, or helping with uh, really difficult situations in Ethiopia uh, uh, um, and so forth, or Ukraine. So uh, there's uh, some ways in which we try to balance the things out um, at the social media platform level. But if not, maybe we could also talk about regulations. So that there's some limit to which uh, how much you want to optimize it for your company company fit does uh, worrying about the healthiness of the society.
1: I got a little, I, I thought your phrasing was interesting on talking about social media, if there is a next one.
2: Yeah, um, there's one collapsing right now, unfortunately.
1: I feel like AI is really manipulating people right now and people just don't realize it especially on platforms like Facebook and Twitter, there's there's this one emotion that really gets at least me to click on things. If, if I see an article that makes me angry, I, I, I almost always click on it, right? Like, like I, I wanna see, I, I, don't, I don't know, maybe I'm a masochist, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, like I always seem to click on articles that make me frustrated or angry because I want to understand how, like there's a ridiculous headline, I don't understand, it just makes me feel something and I want to just either get mad or try to understand what they're talking about. And I feel like, you know, maybe platforms like Twitter, they, they sort of optimize this. They sort of optimize for anger. And the reason why I'm starting to wonder if this sort of cancel culture, this sort of, you know, maybe maybe wokeism isn't the right one, but there's, some, there's something that's coming from the fact that we're all using this algorithm that is just trying to make us angry all the time yeah and we're addicted to it yeah it's changing us as a people I think. yeah what do you think
2: uh first of all i noticed that too on twitter and facebook for some reason i don't feel very good so i don't scroll very much to be honest you know every time i Every new year, at the beginning of new year, I'm thinking, oh, I should do have a more social presence and tweet some fancy tweets in the way that really smart academics do about papers and such. But I go there and then I don't feel very well. You know, people shooting each other down basically verbally, abusive tweets about each other. And I just cannot look at it. So I guess in my case, I just don't want to see it. So I am able to not to see very much so by being remote uh, um i was logged out of facebook for a long time as a matter of fact like if people sent me messages i have no idea um and so uh, i found tiktok on the other hand (laughs) can i say this (laughs) it's a lot more uh positive uh that it may be because um Uh, I don't necessarily see academics, you know, trying to promote their papers and shoot down each other's papers in that space, but rather random people sharing their lives about their cute dogs or cats or, you know. (laughs) Dancing. um, Yeah, it's just very uh, uplifting, I found, just seeing different lives, um, people, random people contributing content. I found it very uplifting and I was a bit thankful, actually, that, oh, wow, this, you know, you can do this. I'm sure that there's other corner in that platform where people are angry. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a such corner, but algorithm somehow figured that I only like positive content. So, or, <laughs> or something that's more, you know, like useful. Uh, it does give me some psychology channel as well. Um, uh, but I wonder whether we could really, you know, uh, rethink about this kind of a platform design so that we... I I kind of feel like right now there's a platform-based support for maybe uh, uh, canceling each other being, you know, a a thing. But I I wonder whether there's also a little bit of um, different generation um, having different uh, uh, focus and purposes. And I really hope that next generation will focus on something more positive and something a little bit more forgiving than how people are right now there where... (sighs) Yeah, I yeah personally I I cannot look at these um, people biting off from each other. there. humans,
1: can like, be it, awful. For for example, Twitter. It's like it seems like what the Twitter objective function is doing is just trying to promote toxicity, right? Trying to pr- make people click on things that make them angry. It's sort of I don't know. So don't worry about th- it. there are a lot
2: of people in my circle, at least who don't go there very often for the same reason that I have, which is that it's just difficult to, to look at them. doesn't make us feel good, yeah. so we kind of avoid. At least I found that muting them helps. <laughs> like if I know some, some person can be very um, aggressive, then I tend to mute them uh, <laughs> so that I don't get that feed. But I, I know some people are still curious and want to check. I'm usually the last person to find out as a result.
1: Uh, I want to ask you one more thing. Um, yeah, what what about jobs? Like the future of jobs? Are you worried that AI will eliminate the working class? Whether it's in our lifetime or an, a generation or so, what's that going to do to society? That eighty percent of the population is without a job.
2: Oh my god. Um, no, I, I mean that sounds horrible. Um, I
1: is don't it, like 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 well, you know you you say that. But time is like the most scarce, it's like the scarcest resource we have as individuals. And we so eagerly sell it away. For you,
2: yeah. Uh, I don't know if, um, uh, I mean, I think there are people who want to not uh, work as hard as you do, I suspect. Um, (laughs) uh, If they have more time, they might want to take more vacations uh you come across as, that's what uh,
1: conferences are for right but uh-huh. <laughs> just, yeah.
2: yeah you come across as someone who like i want to work hard which is uh um <laughs> uh, not necessarily the most common vibe that the new generation might have i don't know
1: yeah
2: um but i personally i think it's nice to have a job for most people probably to have a bit of a regularity in their life so that uh, there's a bit of a structure and principles and it may be a good thing and happiness. I tend to believe that is in the flow of work. There's actually a book about this. Hmm. Um, yeah. I think the book may be, the title might be flow. It's like when we are in the flow of working and really focused, that's when actually people are happy. Is the thesis of the book. And I, I think um, that sort of goes with this, um, uh proverb that you know busy bees may not have a time to cry or something so uh there's some truth to it that you know while i'm busy with the deadlines uh oftentimes i'm just you know happy in the you know reasonably happy in the process of work as opposed to feeling depressed because there's just no time to feel depressed right now i need to work on this um But um, yeah, I mean, okay, like when you ask me this hypothetical question about 80% people don't have a job, I find it difficult to to even imagine um, what it would be. Um, Again, it may be that I was rather skeptical about uh, future AI actually replacing uh, 80% of us because I can imagine that AI will be used by, for example, journalists, but I cannot imagine AI becomes the journalist. Yeah. Uh, or I can imagine lawyers. Uh, there may be some AI lawyers helping out, some easier cases or cases where people cannot pay for the human lawyers. Uh, but then uh, people will prefer to have human lawyers, I believe. So uh, people will be there still. Um, by the way, I was surprised to realize that there are apparently a lot of people who actually want to have um, lawsuits, but they just don't have the financial means. So they just don't have access to jurisdiction in many countries. Hmm. in A lot of uh, population is that way. So then I can see that some people might benefit from some such service. Um, um And then, you know, AI researchers will be replaced by AI, I doubt. Uh, Lawmakers, policymakers cannot be replaced by AI. I think it should be humans who do that. Um, And then even truck drivers. Do you believe Mm -hmm. that AI can drive trucks without uh, making silly mistakes? I don't know when it's going to come. It's been coming almost for too many years (laughs) in a row. And I started losing hope at this point.
1: You said people, they don't have the finances to pursue like legal interest. In America, there's an op- there's sometimes an opposite problem. They have so much money, they don't have a legal problem, but they want to make one, right? Uh, I feel like these generative AI might be able to help with that a little bit, right? Um, could that be a problem?
2: Yeah, I mean, okay, so people coming up with really creative misuse of AI, that could be a real concern. And that's where the AI policy really needs to catch up. Like, I think the policy, uh, the government regulation, all these things need major, major upgrade going forward. And I I do really think that um, there's a good chance that humans will prefer humans. You know, like uh, chess game playing and game of go or soccer games. Humans love playing other humans playing these games, but can you possibly imagine it being a big deal when AI plays with another AI and then, you know, really? The, I don't know. Like, I think I suspect that humans have a bias toward the bio beings doing amazing work. So, I think some of these jobs will not be replaced by AI, even if AI is actually better at it.
1: I want to end on a positive note. So, you know, we've, we've, we've sort of painted a bit of a dystopia here, I think. Um, we've talked about the end of culture, end of the working class. Uh, you know, the policy seems like it's lagging behind. Um, can you give people suggestions on how to be optimistic for, this, for what's coming?
2: Yeah, I think um, first we all need to be aware of all these fundamental limitations of AI so that we don't go into this AI hype uh, bandwagon, which, by the way, AI hype comes with uh, fear hype as well. It's not yeah. just about um, the optimism that is in the hype, but it's also the fear that's in the hype, in my view. So I think um, we—it's good to have um, real insight about where it fails, how it fails, and you know, um, understanding the fundamental gap between AI and human intelligence today. Uh, the other aspect of it is that whatever happens with AI, whether it progresses super fast or not, the policy does need to catch up, because in whatever form of AI, it's going to make increasing impact in the society. Especially because people can use it as a tool to misuse for um, male intent, so policy doesn't need to catch up, and um, But having said that, I think there's a lot of good opportunities for developing AI for positive societal impact if we want it. And so I would love to see more such effort in the community than how much it is there right now, especially, um, uh, you know, we can start with even things like racism and sexism. Um, Some people never work on it. Uh, thinking that, well, it's not a scientific problem for me. You know, it's it's an it's a application problem that someone else will take care of. Some people have this kind of attitude and it's not very helpful because, first of all, it's not application problem. It's actually not that easy to solve. There's a fundamental science problem as to why that's so hard and it's not just like a classification problem that your magic neural network can solve so long as you have your better neural network developed. It's not like that. There's a lot of these nuanced Social common sense, moral reasoning, all that is in play that current models cannot really uh, sufficiently address. and so it's a real intellectual problem that anybody can contribute to. and same goes with uh, fake news detection. This is where it really pushes the you know frontier of AI capabilities, and so we can really think about these hard, important challenges and then invest some of our effort more toward that, and I think that would be really, really amazing. The other thing that I want to sneak in is that um, we always had this mindset of, well, there's a one gold truth, AI should you know, learn this gold truth label, but it might be that the more broader impact we make through AI, we start touching on these fuzzy problems where there's no one good truth, um, even generating good document is in that area, but like, you know, legal uh, decision making or uh, any other decision making usually does have a lot of nuances, which means uh, the final decision cannot have just one uh, correct answer. Oftentimes, there may be multiple good answers or multiple wrong answers and no good answer, in which case, we do want to understand why what are the pros and cons of each options, and then be able to uh, 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 introspect about that. And so developing such AI would make really powerful uh, impact in the society, like interpretability and all that. And so I really do think that we can be creative to make real positive impact through AI, instead of feeling hopeless in the arrival of I don't know, GPT X in the coming years, we can be more proactive.
1: Thank you, Yajin. That was this was so much fun.